0: Thanks, Ben. Uh, my name's Tim. It's great to be with you. Uh, you'll find an outline of where we're going today, opposite where the passage is printed. It'd be really helpful to have that open. I want you to look at the verse right in the middle of uh, the, the Bible printing today, verse 21. Jesus says to this guy, Sell everything, give it to the poor, come follow me. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Sell everything. Sell everything. Even the shirt off your back today, your laptop, everything else you own, come follow me. That's a bit radical, isn't it? Does Jesus say that to all of us? It's something we sort of can't avoid when it's in the Bible like this, can we? Well, let's think about it a little bit more deeply. There's a principle of Bible interpretation that's really important for us at this point, which is that often when the Bible tells us, recounts an incident for us, it's what it says at the end that shows, sheds light on what's been just said. It's often the key to what the story means. And this story finishes with a statement. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Sounds innocuous enough, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds like a nice friendly proverb that you could apply to situations of oppression. Now, the oppressors will be humbled and brought down and the, their poor victims will be vindicated and lifted up. But stop and think a bit more deeply about it the first will be last and the last will be first. Imagine that happened at the Olympics. You know, there's the heats, there's the semis, there's the finals. And the people who've really busted their guts, they finally swum their best time ever, might get onto the, the podium. And then when it comes to time of giving out medals, they give the gold, silver and bronze to the people who lost in the, in, in the heats. And those who won are left out in the dark. Like, that messes with your mind, doesn't it? It turns your world upside down if that's going to happen. Or imagine university. Those who get HDs all the way through, but it comes to the, the, um, the graduation ceremony and they, they don't get anything. It's those who, lost in, who failed out in first semester who get given the honours degrees. Like, that's just wrong, isn't it? How can you have a system like that? or imagine in your family. The rule is that whoever vacuums the house gets the car on Saturday night. So you go and grab the vacuum cleaner and vacuum the house, top to bottom. Come Saturday night, you've organised your date, you've got dressed up, you go to mum to ask for the keys, and your sister's got the keys who did nothing. That is wrong, isn't it? It shouldn't happen. It, It relativises all success. It reverses everything in the world. You'd be outraged, wouldn't you? But what if you knew beforehand that that was a system? What if you knew at the beginning that those who are first will be last and the last will be first? How would you live if you knew that was true of your study? (laughs) It'd be really tempting not to do any study, wouldn't it? It'd it'd, it'd change everything. You'd feel so uncomfortable and, 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 and unsure of what to do. Well, Jesus is telling us beforehand about what happens at the end the first will be last and the last will be first and the the two stories that are part of our passage today are two examples two uh, incidents that illustrate what Jesus is talking about they shed light on this principle that Jesus brings us the first is Jesus and children Parents, presumably, are bringing their young kids to Jesus because they want Jesus to, to give them some time and attention. And the disciples, they sort of take on the responsibility of, being, of looking after Jesus' itinerary. They realise that Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's Messiah. He, he, he's, he's important, which is a very positive thing. You know, Imagine that you, Jesus was visiting Perth for a week and you're in charge of his itinerary. Who would get to see Jesus? I presume it's people like Mark McGowan and business leaders and the sports success, wouldn't it? And the disciples are thinking along that line. And in their mind, not children. Because they're not important, they don't matter, they're not influencers, they're not worth Jesus' precious time. And they're expecting Jesus to be pleased with them. But instead, he's indignant. He's actually really angry with them. They've completely got it wrong. They got the whole thing upside down. He goes on to say in verse 14, let them come to me, don't hinder them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these children. These grubby, noisy kids, they belong in this place and in my kingdom. And then in verse 15, he spells out the implications of that for all of us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, he's talking here not just about kids, but adults being like little kids. You can't enter unless you're childlike, unless you receive it like a child. Now, what childlike quality does Jesus have in mind? Is it the innocence of children? Well, if you've been a kid, you know that's not true, don't you? I can remember as a kid thinking, I I wish one day I'd grow up and be an adult and I wouldn't be quite so naughty as I am now. As an adult, I look back on kids and think, I wish I didn't know how naughty I was now as an adult. But are the disciples stopping the children coming because they're too innocent? Hardly. No, they're stopping them coming because they don't matter. That's the issue. They're unimportant. They've got nothing to offer Jesus and his kingdom. This kingdom of God is Jesus' kingdom. It's a kingdom that he's going to bring into existence, especially by his death and resurrection. His victory over Satan and sin and death, offering the benefits of what he's done to to us, to to humanity, forgiveness and a welcome and a place in his eternal kingdom. And Jesus is saying, if you think you deserve a place in that kingdom, because you're smart, because you're good, because you're religious, because you're at UWA, then you're locked out. You've got to become like a child who's got no pretensions about themselves, nothing to commend themselves, no self-importance whatsoever. To those people, the door is wide open. And that's been happening in Mark's gospel. Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, an outcast. Come follow me. Goes and has dinner at his place with all the other tax collectors and the sinners, the, the people who everybody else thinks are too low to even associate with. Those who are first now think that they deserve to be at the front of the line. They'll get pushed to the back of the line. And those who are last now, who think they don't deserve anything from Jesus, they'll be pulled to the front of the line. And this isn't some sort of spectrum where you just sort of move around a little bit wherever you're on the line, you get to move. This is binary. Those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. This is the way his kingdom works. And so Jesus welcomes children. He takes them in his arms and he gives them the blessing of his welcome and his presence and his prayers. Now, Just a little aside, if you're involved in kids ministry, take note of this. Children are welcome in his kingdom. You might think it's not worth doing kids ministry. I want to do adults ministry. That's where the real game is. No, kids is where the game is. They're precious. Give them the time even if they don't ask for it. Because the first will be last and the last first. And it's in this context that this man runs up to Jesus and throws himself at his feet to ask about entering the kingdom. Verse 17, good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you read through the passage, inherit eternal life is equated with entering the kingdom and being saved. It's about where you are for eternity at the end of this life when Jesus returns. And this guy is clearly sincere. He really wants to know what he must do. He wants eternal life. It's a genuine question. And as you explore what this guy's like, he's got everything going for him. He, he's eager to know. He doesn't dawdle up to Jesus, he runs to Jesus. He throws himself in front of him to ask his question. He's respectful, good teacher as he asks his question he's spiritually minded he he wants eternal life he's a genuine seeker and we find out that he's morally good he knows the commands of God He's studied them and he's kept the commands of God he's been honest all his life he hasn't as a teenager uh, run wild and the disciples don't stop him coming to Jesus so, I presume if this guy walked into our church or came in to see you today and said, What must I do to inherit, to inherit eternal life? I'd be really tempted to say, Oh, not much. You're practically there already. Jesus called those disciples, Peter and James and John and Andrew, to come and make fishes and catch men, become fishes of men. And here's a fish jumping into their boat. And Jesus' response, appears rude and demanding. You call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, verse 18. He's called him good and, and Jesus sort of throws that respectful address back in his face. What is he doing? Is Jesus denying that he's divine? Well, that can't be the case because he goes on to answer the question. He doesn't say I'm not qualified to answer the question. He goes and answers the question, and he makes a demand. He gives a command which is only appropriate for God to do, I think. It'd be inappropriate for a mere human to say, "Sell everything and come and follow me." Now I suspect what he's trying to do is make this guy stop and think. Why are you asking Jesus this question? Could he be God? And do I really think that I'm good? It's a prod. But then verse 21 is the sledgehammer, isn't it? Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. You lack something. You must do this. Sell everything. For me, that's ludicrous. I'd make it as easy as possible for this guy to to become one of us and, and be part of God's people. Aren't all welcome? But Jesus doesn't treat him that way. And sadly, unwillingly, the guy says no. It, 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 literally, it, it says, here it says, at, at this, the man's face fell. It's, actually, he was shocked at what Jesus said. It, it, it wasn't what he was expecting. It was completely out of left field. And he walks away from Jesus and Jesus' demand, sad, his feet dragging, unwilling to do what Jesus has said. And then Mark explains why. Because he was rich. Literally, because he had many possessions, he had a home full of uh, of clothes and jewelry. He had homes and fields, and it almost is like if he had nothing, it would have been easy for him, because there's nothing to lose. But because he had so much to lose, he was unwilling to do it. He said he wanted eternal life, but it turns out he was thoroughly attached to this life and its comforts. He called Jesus good teacher, but he's unwilling to obey his teaching. He's unwilling to lose his life for Jesus. His life consisted of his wealth and all that wealth brings, his possessions that made him a somebody. He decides to save his life now. Now Jesus sees the reaction of his disciples Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are openly amazed. This, this is an upright, wealthy, sincere person. Surely already he's favoured by God. He's, he's blessed by God. He's practically there already, isn't he? They can't understand what Jesus is saying, but Jesus chides them for their dullness. It's hard, he says in verse 24, to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's really hard for anybody to enter. And it's really, really hard for the rich to enter. He talks about it's, harder. it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's a ludicrous picture, isn't it? You know one of those little needles you use for sewing? Well, they have slightly bigger ones, but they're still little. They're tiny things with a little eye in it. Imagine trying to push a camel through the eye. It will not go. It's sort of like trying to push your car uh, through the keyhole. It's just not going to happen, is it? And the disciples are completely thrown and disorientated that. Disciples are even more amazed, verse 26, and said to each other, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Their world is being turned upside down by Jesus. And they say, if he can't enter, then who can? Surely no one can. See, it's not just the rich for whom it's difficult. What stops the rich entering stops anybody and everybody from entering. It's not so much attachment to money, but it's what money gives you. See, money makes you a somebody, doesn't it? It gives you standing and status. And it's true in every culture, whether wealth is counted in cows or condominiums. And of course, it's not just wealth that can give us status and respect, it's marks and qualifications, it's the family we come from, the school we've been to, it's our performance whether that's academically or in sport or any other way. It's who our friends are. It's how tough or buff or pretty we are. So he wants to come with his wealth. He wants to hang on to his status. And Jesus says, no, you can only come empty-handed like a child. So it's not hard because the bar is too high. It's hard because the bar is too low. That's what makes it hard for everybody. But he says what's impossible with humans is possible with God. Now, I'm not quite sure what he means by that. He could, could be meaning because God gives his, gift as, his kingdom as a gift, um, like forgiveness, it is just grace. It's only possible because God is gracious like that. And, and that's true. Or it could be saying only God can change our hearts. So we let go of those attachments to wealth and everything else this world can provide in order to enter the kingdom. Now, both are true. And I suspect Jesus means both, but I'm not quite sure. Peter pipes up in verse 28. Well, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Unlike the rich man. And Jesus affirms that that's been a good thing. And he says, anyone who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. There's a sting in the tale, but he does say, even in this life, you won't, be, you won't totally lose out. There'll be a provision of a new family that you can be part of, much bigger than your natural biological family, if you've had to leave those behind in order to enter the kingdom. Now, I need to be careful here. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. You know, if I give away a field, God's got to give me 100 fields. Man, then I've really got it. And if I give away 100 fields, I then get 10,000 fields. Man, if this goes on for 10 years, I'll be really, really rich. Uh, it's not like that. Bad. He's, he's saying it, God won't owe you something. It's not, if you, it's not as if you put God in your debt. He will look after you, but with it will come persecutions. You'll be unpopular. You'll be discriminated against. You'll be tortured. You might even be killed. But critically, and this is the thing that makes it all worthwhile, you'll get eternal life in the age to come. Not because you've earned it, but because it's been given to you. That's what the rich man wanted, but walked away from. This is what Jesus guarantees to those who lose anything or everything, to follow him, for him and for the gospel. So it's for me in the gospel. It's not lose everything gambling on on, uh, Bitcoin. It's lose everything because of your allegiance to Jesus, because of your extravagance in the cause of the gospel. Now relocating to another country to take the gospel to a gospel poor place or speaking up with my friends, inviting them to read Mark Uncover with me. And that's risky. And verse 31 explains the rich man as well as the children. Many who are first will be last. And the last first. In a sense, there's a bit of a warning to the disciples there. There's there's a danger of thinking that they're going to be first because they've given up more, as if they're playing another game of status. They've just changed the currency. That's not like that. Don't think about Jesus, his kingdom, and us. Jesus' kingdom is unlike any other kingdom in this world, any other club, any other society, any other whatever you might want to create because all of those have entrance requirements. It, you, you come in because of what you can bring. And the more you bring, the more chance of being higher up within that organisation, whether that's money or wealth or, uh, or capacities and gifts or training um, and qualifications. We do it with migrants, don't we? You want to come to Australia? Well, you've got to get a certain number of points to get into Australia. University does it with marks. They rate everything that you do. But this kingdom is different. This kingdom is radically different. Because in this kingdom, the king serves his subjects. We'll explore this next week. In this kingdom, the king dies for the people. That is different. That that's turns everything the other way up to the way our world works. Well, turns it upside down. You could say, I think Jesus would say, no, I'm, I'm turning it the right way up. This is actually the way it should be and will be in my kingdom. And so you can't enter the kingdom unless you become like a child, unless you receive it like a child, empty-handed. No badges on your chest, no plaques on the door, no ATAR score tattooed on your forehead, no surname that you can leverage, no sacrifices to boast in. There's an old hymn that puts it right, I think. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. But to come empty handed, I've got to let go of whatever was in my hand, whatever I've been holding on to. If if I'm a nobody and happy to be a nobody, then there's nothing to let go of. But if I've got something, I've got to let go of it. That's why Jesus says to the rich man, sell everything you have, give it away, follow me. He saw what this guy was holding on to. Well, what do we do with this incident? Jesus and the rich man. There's sort of two extremes you could go, couldn't you? You could say, Jesus is saying this to every one of us. Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, which means the poor have now got something so they don't get into the kingdom. That is, poverty is necessary in order to follow Jesus. And that is possible. I want to suggest it's not true, because this is actually the only person Jesus says this to. He doesn't say it to Nicodemus, for example. Uh, Or you could go the other extreme and say, well, he only said it to this guy, so it's got nothing to do with us. Uh, I can just read it, be fascinated and go back to normal life. Now, within the context, Jesus is saying on the last day, something unusual is going to happen, something that naturally you don't expect. The first will be last and the last will be first. And he's telling you that up front, so you live your life knowing that that's going to happen. It's going to be upended. And if you know it's going to happen, that, that, that will bring a paradigm shift now. You'll live life totally differently now if you understand that. Like if you went to the Olympics knowing that that was going to happen, you'd perform very differently, wouldn't you? Well, you know. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 8. Verse 34 following where Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? What can anybody give in exchange for their soul? Well, that's the rich man, isn't it? He wants to save his life. He's got this wealth and he wants to hang on to that no matter what. He's going to lose his life. Why is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Because their wealth makes them think they're a somebody. It gives them recognition and respect and acceptance. It gives them a status and it gives them security. To sell all and follow Jesus is to lose all that, to become a nobody, Totally dependent on Jesus. And that's the same for anybody who's pushing towards the front of the line, investing so much in acquiring wealth or gaining qualifications and recognition or building respect amongst their peers. It's very hard to let that go and throw it away. And if you can't let it go, you must. If you can't, you must. I remember being on a, uh, a weekend camp one time and one of the guys who came along to the camp who was invited by some of his friends was a 16-year-old guy who played cricket. Like he just played cricket and I discovered it when I chatted to him, he was already in the Australian schoolboy cricket team. And he said, I- I'm really interested in Jesus. I- I'd love to know more about Jesus and I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. And I said to him, well, I want to read a story from the Bible with you. And we read this story. And at the end of it, I said to him, what do you think Jesus would say to you? He said, oh, that's pretty clear, isn't it? He'd say to me, give up cricket. And I said, yeah, I suspect he probably would. I I can't say for sure, but I I think he would. Will you? He said, no, I, I can't. It's my life. And he walked away sad. But if you are willing to, maybe you don't need to. Do you see that? If I'm willing to, if if I'm actually willing to be empty-handed, maybe I don't need to. I presume that's why Jesus didn't say this to everybody. But your willingness will show in your decisions, won't it? If opening my mouth about Jesus risks losing the respect of my friends, I'll do it. If the cause of the gospel will be advanced by relocating to a slum in Nairobi, I'll do it. If I won't... I'm unwilling, aren't I? I'm holding on tight. So, what do you think Jesus would say to you? What is it that you want to hold on to that makes you a somebody? Is it the prospect of being called an engineer or a lawyer or a psychologist? Is it the dream of marrying that guy or girl that would just make your life? It's a very difficult question, I think, for most of us because. We, and I include me in this, we've invested so much into our lives so far, haven't we? We've invested a lot of effort and time and money into our education with the prospect of what that's going to give us. And our parents have invested that in the schools they've sent us to, the tutoring maybe, the university that they've supported us to go to. You can hardly contemplate throwing that away. They've given us the best opportunity to succeed in life. They've pushed us to the front of the line. Well, listen to what Jesus says just in the chapter before, it's chapter nine, verse forty-three. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better to enter life maimed than with two hands go to hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better to enter life crippled than with two feet be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. They're strong words, aren't they? He's saying surgery might be necessary, radical surgery. What have you got in your hand that you're unwilling to let go? What is it about you that makes you a somebody that you, you, you can't bear the thought that that would no longer be there? That's what's got to go, doesn't it? That's what surgery is needed for. And if it's going to constantly trip you up day after day, year after year, it sounds like surgery is advisable. Jesus is asking us some awkward questions. They're unsettling questions, aren't they? It's a whole different outlook on life. The first will be last and the last will be first. That's actually what's going to happen. Do you believe that? If so, and I hope you do, the temptation for us is to say, oh boy, that, that's a hard question, but I'm just going to have lunch. I'll avoid it because it's too hard. I, I don't want to grapple with it. Can I ask you, please, to face this question honestly? I don't say it because I want life to be hard for you. I say it because Jesus wants life to be good for you, to have eternal life. That's what matters, doesn't it? Take some time, please, to work out, to think through. What is it that you're holding on to that matters so much to you that you would hold on to it instead of entering the kingdom? What is it that makes you so tall that you can't get under the low bar? Many Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Amen.